Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Eilish. I'm one of the volunteers here at Libra, so just come to me with any questions you have about the building or how to get to different sessions. Um, the session you're at this morning is session nine, access to collections and digital preservation. And the fire exits are at the top of the room to the right and to the left, and volunteers are on hand to assist with any emergencies. Um, you probably know by now that the nearest bathrooms are down in the arts block, just down the stairs, or by stairwell B, just up on the first floor, and the water fountains are out to the right. So there will be a coffee break immediately after this session, starting at 11.15, and then at 11.40, you'll be going down... Um, to the poster sessions that are down in the Edmund Burke. And for those of you, just a reminder, if you're going to be taking part in the tours, the old library later, to register at the registration desk and to just sign up because there's different time slots for the day. So just make sure you do that and before the session ends today. Thank you. Thank you for that. My name is Thomas Karstedt. I'm from the University Library of Southern Denmark and I'm chairing this session. Uh, I will make an extremely brief introduction to the three speakers. Then the three speakers will go on, and if it's possible within the time frame, they can field questions immediately after their talk. Otherwise, we'll have a potentially close uh, wrap-up session in the end. So access to collections and digital preservation. Uh, if you guys came from the keynote, it, it's a bit of a paradox that we, in this open world, is becoming increasingly more open and we should work uh, to do that. Access to materials and actually preserving them is becoming no less important and no less of a challenge. So today we're going to hear three different and interesting perspectives from specialists within their field. It's three examples of preservations and people who have met complex challenges or identified new opportunities and tackled them in different and interesting ways. So the key word today is collaboration internationalization, the importance of network, copyrights, new frameworks, community building, hands-on solutions, and reflections and analysis. First of all, you will hear John Dowd, Assistant uh, Director of Collection Management and Development from University of Birmingham. Then Dr. David Tudor from uh, National Library of Wales and Fred Saunderson, Rights Information Manager from Scotland. And in the end, we'll have Dr. Monica Sarnitz, Head of Departments of User Services and Collection Care from the Leibniz uh, Information Center of Economics. So with that, I'll give the floor to you. Enjoy the session. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, if I could start with a small confession. Uh, I'm an imposter on the stage. Uh, actually, my colleague, Alex Fenlon, who's our head of copyright and licensing, submitted the paper, but he's unfortunately unable to be here today, so I'm stepping in on his behalf. Um, it's all good news why Alex couldn't attend. He's hopefully in a hospital somewhere welcoming the, the birth of his third child. Um, so uh, I'm sure his thoughts are, are with me right now as I present his paper. Okay. So, Alex posed a question. And the question being, is paraphrased, I believe, from Shakespeare's Hamlet, 
to license or not to license. Um, the presentation is relating to electronic re information resources and it's the University of Birmingham's uh, story, our recent story, uh, of uh, responding to the issues and drivers of globalization uh, by, by our universities. It's very much uh, a lived experience. So, where it all began, the University of Birmingham Strategy 2026. Um, it's got, a, like most universities, it has a strong, ambitious growth agenda. Uh, the, key, the key points are, it wants to be a multi-site global university with Edgebaston Birmingham at its heart, a recognized rising star institution, a more research-intensive environment, a place of transformation education, a destination of choice, and of course, financially strong. And on the screen, uh, you see the university's key performance targets are listed, how we're going to measure uh, that success. And I've highlighted two of them here that are relevant to, uh, to the discussion. The first are, are highlighted in blue, enhanced student-staff ratios. And that was going to be done, is going to be done by recruiting an additional 1,400 additional academic and research-focused staff during this time frame. Over this, also in black bold, the ambition is to grow our student numbers by 11,000, many of whom will be studying overseas. So where did it all start? Well, it was before my time in spring 2016. Staff meetings were called. Uh, there was no notification of what those all staff meetings were about, so you can guess there was a lot of nervousness of what the contents of what the message could be. However, the announcement was, oops, the University of Dubai, uh, a University of Birmingham, Dubai. Um, the key thing was that it was, um, the, the, the message was that we were going to launch an incubator space followed by a phase two uh, later on. Um, the challenge being, um, that it was looking for, in the incubator space, a comparable offer to, offer to the UK. Not similar, not the same as, but a comparable quality and a comparable standard. So, the challenges. The incubator space was opened in September 2018. It was an, it's an existing building which has been refurbished and provides a temporary home for the university. At the point of launch, and when the discussions were in place two years ago, the whole focus was on opening the incubator space, not the long-term ambi long ambition of opening a full campus. That was part of the challenges that we were facing. So what the university was focused on was they were wanting to launch with four subjects initially for undergraduates and PGTs. There would be no research. And the subject areas were computer science, mechanical engineering, education and business. The second part, phase two, the University of Birmingham, Dubai, full campus in academic city, Dubai, opening 2021-2022, with a goal of accommodating 4,000 students and staff, complete with a new library space and full access to the UK student experience. So now it's not comparable, it's now the same as. Sorry, my slides are out of sync. I do apologise. So you can see at the top left-hand corner our incubator space and the big vision 
a fully purpose-built campus, which I believe is now under construction. Another fateful meeting, uh, again, uh, this time for Alex. Two years out, our director and her, her senior membership, her senior, senior team started to discuss with all the heads of departments, all the specialist areas, what would the implications be for them, both in the short and long term. Alex, highlighted two. One was the potential cost implications relating to electronic resources. The second was copyright law and local interpretation for research teaching practices, and again, access to those resources. Number one for this presentation being key here. There were two main issues that we encountered in deciding what to do. The first one was ethical. Is honesty the best policy? Ensuring license were compliant for Dubai was the right thing to do. It was going to be a high profile initiative and we were aware that the publishers and suppliers would be, would, would be, would be knowledgeable uh, of what we were planning. However, like most institutions, we were vaguely aware, some we were near to, some we were far away, to other t and &E or collaborative activity the institution was engaged in. If we plan to negotiate with the publishers around Dubai, should we also include these other vague arrangements? And what were these vague arrangements? At that time, there was specifically uh, a presence in Singapore, a presence in China, and plus several small UK validated arrangements, about 200 individuals. Anyone here who's an institution involved in TN activity will understand just how big a challenge that is. The second issue we started talking about, so we were just looking for problems at this stage, was around IT. First of all, granular authentication in allowing Dubai staff and students to act resource, resources relevant just for their subjects only. This requires, we're aware that granular authentication is possible, but it does require uh, universities and publishers to work together. And we are aware of some HEI is taking that approach. However, at that specific period, the university was engaged in major IT infrastructure build. Uh, IT resource was not going to be available to us. So it was also, going back to that question, what is a comparable experience? Was it just okay to give them access to core material only? The second problem was that the university's infrastructure, as we see it, is not porous. Um, once you give access credentials to an individual, it may be for a different system, it may be for the VLE, it may be for email purposes, they get access to all the systems. It's very much a wall garden. You're either inside or outside. So similarly, if we gave them access to one part of the system for VLE, they could automatically have access, if they wanted to, to the full library resources. The second one was down to, third one was down to access entitlement. The university has definitions of staff, students, and other relationships when, when allowing them what can be described as non-traditional staff and students access to our systems and services. However, they may not make, make, match the expectations or the business models of publishers and suppliers. 
So we started to try and be a little bit more positive. Um, why should we uh, start to look at a full-scale review of all our licenses? First driver was political, governmental strategy, encouraging UK universities to globalise. Um, this, this, this policy paper, International Education Strategy, Global Potential, Global Growth, there are two figures there. Figure one shows a growth over six years uh, of 15.9 billion to 19.9 billion of education exports. Figure two, 13.5 billion generated via higher education and 1.9 billion specifically by TNE activity. Also, the university said that's what we want to do, the strategic driver. Our physical space at our campus in Edgbaston, Birmingham is at a premium and the logical way to expand is online and, and other physical locations. Dubai was our driver. However, we were aware of collaborations, partnerships, cooperations, overseas campuses, Dubai, joint institutes, whatever the model, was becoming the norm. Um, it was very much like um, King Canute in the 10th century. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the story of him standing at the, sitting at, sitting at, the uh, at the tide coming in and holding, trying to hold back the tide. Uh, the library was very much used to saying, no, you can't, no, you can't, it's a problem, it's a can't. What we wanted to do really, if the strategy says so, uh, we needed to make our licenses to work for the institution and not to hinder it. The second one, third one, we, we thought was actually a sector one and a reality check. There's a move from print to electronic. Um, this is a fundamental change in the business model from content ownership in the prints, albeit with uh, res uh, restrictions on use, such as copyright, to a rental model, where our content is determined by the agreements we sign with our suppliers, which, which determines entitlement and el eligibility to access and use content. We're very grateful for national agreements that we have for the UK with, uh, in the UK through uh, JISC, um, because they provide model licenses uh, um, for, for, the, for the vendors. However, there is a massive long tail uh, of individual agreements and license arrangements that we uh, negotiate on ourselves. Uh, and that's where the issue starts to come in. Our experiences, even with the GIST national model licenses, that some vendors' interpretations uh, were not the same as GISCs, uh, which made for some interesting discussions. When we were looking at the long tail of the individual licenses, some of the questions we started to get nervous about was, do we know they are covered? What's already in, what's already out? Are we sure about that? Are we certain when we start to talk to vendors? Can we risk it? What is our approach to risk as an institution? We may make our own assessments of coverage, but what about the suppliers? Will they have the same view? What if they don't? What are the cost implications? And fundamentally, if we are charged, can we afford it? Can we afford not to, though, based on the reality that 85% of UOB uh, library services spend is on electronic and 15% on print? It, it is the reality that we face. So back to the question. And Alec posed two, two points. This, all, this preamble has all been down to, do we go and, uh, and, and um, start to negotiate or do we 
rely on a heavily print-based library out in Dubai. So, the pros and cons to license. The major one being the last, as it fulfills the university's ambitions to provide a comparable student and staff experience to those in Dubai. Comparable, we, we viewed, is not just giving them the core access. It's comparable is giving them the full access. Conversely, the, the worries were cost, viability, feasibility, and resource requirements in doing so. So, if we didn't license, not to expand licenses, we could spend our money on building an extensive print collection that would be tailored and dedicated to the courses delivered there. It would be one-off, known costs in advance. Of course, reality is we know that many items that we want to provide are not print-based. So that was a sort of pipe dream that we were looking at. Ultimately, though, it would lead to disparity between the UK and Dubai. So the decision for the library, uh, the decision that the, the library director made uh, was that we surely should fully support the strategic aims of the university and to do a full roots and branch review of all of our licenses, appreciating that the implications for time, staff and money, both in the short term and long term, as we tried to move it into business as usual, was significant. Um, and that there were certain risks that we had to make the university aware of, um, financial and reputational. It's not just about the cost, but it's about the potential uh, uh, litigation uh, against a breach of contract. So, from discussions in 16, 2016 to 2017, we set up an internal project. There was an overarching uh, project for the university um, and which we fed into. And there were seven work streams. Uh, Alex's work stream was the content uh, uh, licensing arrangements. All the work streams were led by specialists in their area and they're all interconnected in multiple ways. Uh, so project governance was required. So, the numbers and figures. A full license review for University of Birmingham. We have about approximately 980 licenses uh, through 380 separate suppliers. Um, what we wanted to do was future-proof for one, one time. So we wanted to get a snapshot of every activity in the university and go out with full disclosure. What we wanted to do also as well was to establish processes, workflows and knowledge that will be useful for any future developments. We would pre-clear pre all discipline areas so that a full expansion of activity could take place. At this stage, we had made that decision. The university hadn't made that decision. Uh, so we knew there would be a cost and the problem, the problem for the university was having, we couldn't tell them how much that cost would be. It was a chicken and egg. Before we started talking, we couldn't appreciate the costs. I think, I apologize, my slides are slightly out of sync here. Um, so when we started to go ahead with the, um, with the work, um, we started in the summer of 2017. We began a full-scale audit of all licenses, identifying any missing documentation, and all the licenses were then recorded into our ERM system. 
We reviewed the relevant terms, identified which license we thought were okay, and those that required amendment or lack clarity that we'd need to work on. We also prioritized uh, those 980 resources into waves. Wave one, priority one, was the multidisciplinary, high volume, high value resources. Wave two was resourceless, con resourceless content. Wave three was everything else. We talked to other libraries uh, to learn from their experiences. And at that time, we also got involved with the JISC TNE licensing pilot, which is looking to develop a service offer uh, for this aspect of, of, uh, of work. It helped to remove those two, having conversations and working with JISC did help us to um, remove some pain points and there was a, was a, was a, was a good supportive uh, route. We also used the supply chain, engaging with intermediaries such as EBSCO to work on our behalf to contact the long tail of suppliers that they managed for us. They sent out our briefing papers and they sent out our correspondence. They managed all the initial responses and forward queries onto us if they could not. But ultimately, if we couldn't get a resolution, we ended up having face-to-face -face talks with the individual publishers. Some of them were quick and easy when they could understand. Some of them were protracted and, could, and for one example, lasted over three, three months of several meetings. So, this time frame, the first public pub publishers were contacted in January 2018. The majority of the negotiations were completed by September 2018. What we considered, there was a small long tail, what we considered as end of project, and we started to move in business as usual, was March 2019. 15 months of Alex's and his team's time, as long as doing the day job on top. So, we needed to get university approval um, at that stage. What we did is we used our library academic engagement team. They had the networks into the colleges, and at that level, they started directing, uh, talking directly to the program leads uh, and, the, and the people that are going to be delivering the courses out there. What we wanted to do was not to give them the issues, but to work with them and get them to understand the problem. On that point, we were very successful. They could understand the implications uh, of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the work that we were undertaking and were highly supportive. As we went up the layers, we uh, started to uh, get significant feedback um, that yes, we understand the problem, uh, but can't we just make it go away? Uh, you know, it's, you know it's, we just want to talk about Dubai. Can we, can we just limit the discussion to Dubai? So discussions were very, very difficult at that stage. We went through formal committee processes uh, with papers, presentations, etc., lobbying uh, senior figures. But a lot of the decisions were down, and I guess it's for most universities, in the coffee shops with the key, uh, with the key agents within the university. But ultimately, the university accepted um, that we should, go, we should do a full review. They asked for the figure. We estimated it on a growth of the 4,000 students, and that represents approximately 20% growth. So we said about 20% of the existing cost base. Uh, we were fortunate that it came well under. So once we had university approval, I do apologize, my slides are out. I've already gone through the audit 
that we described. Um, we started to look at, as we came out of it and into business as usual, how should we, how should we manage this new work? Because we very much saw it as we have a, a mature collection management workflows and processes for our prints. E, we sort of keep it a vague arm's length. What we, want, what we intend to do now is use the same mechanisms that we've developed, the same process that we've developed within the project, and turn this into a recurrence, not annual cycle, but once every three year cycle, where we'll go out with full disclosure and, and, and go through that process again. We hope, by engaging with the publishers, that they start to become more familiar with the conversations, which were, for some, uh, rather um, uh, awkward. So the new, the new business as, as usual. The benefits for us was library reach. We got access to committees we haven't previously been on, so our collaborative partnership pro, uh, uh, committee, um, and we're also on program approvals uh, panels as well. And we're there at the start, uh, rather than at the end, is there any issues for the library to deal with. Um, one of the things we have been successful, particularly with the collaborative partnership arrangements, is that we actually um, managed to change agreements with some of the validated programs to take out library access, because it was clear that the students and staff had no direct uh, correlation to the university. We've developed closer working relations with key teams. Um, our engagement teams now, rather than coming along just trying to sell or promote, uh, are engaging in more productive discussions. We, we've been, the, the whole project itself has raised the expertise of our staff in this area, um, and what we're looking at now is more opportunities to support the university when more partnerships come along. And on that point, Alex says thank you. And I do apologize for the slide transitions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, due to the time and we want to give full time to our other presenters, we will try to make a short feeling of questions afterwards. And with that, in mind, gentlemen. problems getting the presentation online here, sorry. In this short technical delay, we, uh, some of you went to the main dinner last night, and I'm sure we three gentlemen can do a uh, song and a dance if you feel like it. I don't know how to make it full screen. How do you do full screen? F? Does that do full screen? Yeah, it tries. No, oh, it's not up there. Oh, oh gosh, that's, oh no. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
They're not visual, so we could just, you know. I think we'll just give it a minute. Yeah. Got it there. There's just no mouse. <laughs> yeah. So if we go that way, it's probably up there somewhere now. So yeah. we good. Do you want to get, get into full screen? Yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry. Happens to be all the time. There we are. Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be a problem. You shouldn't lose the mouse again. But yeah, someone will be alright. Great, thanks for your help. Good morning, um, I'm David Tidder from the National Library of Wales and um, Fred Sonson from the National Library of Scotland and I will be sharing with you um, a, copyright assessment for frame, uh, a copyright assessment framework for libraries which has been in development for a couple of years now and um, this is the first time that we've presented it uh, publicly. Um, the driver, the strategic context to, to this work is the National Library of Wales and National Library of Scotland's commitment to mass digitisation, the mass digitisation of its physical collections. So NLS um, has committed in a strategy to digitise a third um, of its collections by 2025, and NLW, National Library of Wales, to double, um, to, um, double the number of digital items to 10 million by 2021. Um, so we see mass digitisation becoming a, a core aspect of our organisation's activities. What this means is that both organisations are doing more with material that is or may be in copyright. And that creates a demand for clearer ways to manage copyright assessment and risk. So what is the framework? <clears throat> the framework is a copyright diagnostic tool that applies minimal collection data to a standardised assessment of the relative risks of making available digital, digitized library materials. So it is a quick way of finding out whether it's okay to do something, basically. It's for someone who would not regard themselves as a specialist in copyright, something that they can turn to um, and reach a point of decision quickly um, and um, accessibly. Um, exactly, so the, 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 the Context for this is, is this was developed thinking about the UK copyright framework that, that we work under. And it's worth just recapping a few of those points um, that, that are particularly salient for what the challenges that we have in this field. Um, so, so copyright duration in the UK is, is normally for 70 years after the death of the author. There can be varieties or the last living author, of course. Um, there's a particular quirk that we deal with in the UK, which is that most unpublished works are in copyright until at least the end of the year 2039, um, if not later. Uh, and that's a particular challenge when you think about national library collections of, of, uh, or, and archival collections that, that we hold, rather, um, where there are very significant and very old um, collections that are in copyright. 
Uh, we have fair dealing exceptions and other exceptions to copyright that allow discrete activities. Um, obviously, we do not have a US-style uh, fair use doctrine or anything like that, no open-ended exceptions, so there's limited exceptions available. What we do have um, since 2014 that's particularly useful for our context is uh, a preservation exception, um, which enables effectively the digitization uh, of, of our collections for the purposes of preservation where the works cannot be replaced. And that is massively helpful. That allows us to, to, to create copies of the works where that's required, but it doesn't do anything about access. What we do have on Access Front as well since 2014 is a provision of what's called the Dedicated Terminals Exception, which does allow limited access, um, effectively to, to allow us to provide some on-site access through dedicated terminals to, to um, in-copyright work, digitised or, or in other formats. But again, this is limited, not full collections, and it's only on-site access. So the gap for us, in a nutshell, is looking at those figures from the first slide, um, is, is engagement with... with off-site access and, and larger scale access to these digitized collections. So the challenge, therefore, is to determine, first and foremost, whether a work is actually in copyright, dealing with all the complexities of whether it is in copyright or not is the number one challenge, and secondarily, dealing with this quirk of, of 2039 and our archival collections. Um, so, so why the framework was created, that the need we were meeting, um, the, two, the first two here really go together, a need for consistency within our respective organisations and a need for efficiency from selection to distribution. We found that we were doing ad hoc digitisation projects with ad hoc copyright assessments. What is the risk starting afresh every single time looking at the copyright questions? There was no joined up um, copyright assessment framework in that sense. Um, a real need for assurance among our staff, our, our, our staff, you know, our curatorial staff and our other specialist staff have a huge range of specialties that they need to, to keep abreast of day to day, whether it's digitization, metadata, copyright is just one of these things and it's rightly that they are very concerned to ensure that they are getting the, 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 everything right and it, the complexities in this demand that they have a, a structure that they can, they can work off of for that. Uh, the need for standardisation, a common approach across the sector would be fantastic. That's why we wanted to do this together. The, the more joined up things are, the more robust things are, we feel. Um, the, the more we're, we're coming to a, a common position and agreements about how we should be approaching copyright risk or copyright assessment, uh, the stronger we feel our position is uh, and, and the better able we're to make our arguments, um, whether it's to our senior management or to others, about why we should be doing things the way we do. And as we've said earlier, this is meeting our strategies in terms of the mass digitization of materials. So what the framework is not is a way to determine your risk level or a risk decision is to be made um, by the organization and what level of risk is acceptable is a decision made by the, by the organization. Um, it's not the last word on copyright assessment. We appreciate that there's a, a vast body of law relating to copyright that goes um, beyond this framework, so it's not the last word by any means. And it doesn't um, include sound recordings, films, broadcasts, or database rights. When we started working on the, um, on the, the framework um, a couple of years ago, um, we sought to base it on existing principles, existing work, as well as copyright law in the UK. And there had been um, developments towards enabling the use of copyright works and especially orphan works in the UK. But those pieces of information we felt weren't joined up as they could potentially be. So the main um, influences for us were Tim Padfield's work, Copyrights for Archivists and Records Managers, 
Um, the Web2 Rights Risk Management Calculator, which was created back in 2010, um, was also a diagnostic tool and um, showed us how a tool like this could potentially work, which, and that was very useful. Um, and then the Orphan Works Guidance that was produced by the Intellectual Property Office in 2014. And there was also a consultation on unpublished works um, and um, the 2039 rule that we have in the UK in that year as well. And there was a very useful annex at the end of that where Ronan Deasley and Tim Padfield had um, made a calculation on when it would be reasonable to assume that um, a work would be um, out of, or, or where there would be 70 years since the death of, it, of a work's creator. Um, and that has been fed, has fed into our framework. Um, and then also 2016, the launch of the rightstatements.org, the 12 um, right statements, um, and that's been used and supported by European and DPLA. And the advantage with these is that not only do you have um, the, the in-copyright statements and the out-of-copyright statements, but also the others um, where it is difficult to determine or there is a degree of uncertainty regarding copyright status, and there are two, three licenses there, or three statements that we've incorporated into the framework. So I'm now going to show what the, what the framework looks like. Before I put it up there, it's just a snapshot of it, and then I'll move on to talk about actually how it works and how it's set up, because it, it, it's a bit complicated, there's a lot to it, and it will probably be very, very tiny, and we won't be able to read it at all, but it's at least worth looking at. It brings a tiny bit of colour. Um, so if everyone just starts at line one, and then we'll work down. Um, this is a snapshot of, of, the, um, of the actual framework itself. Um, we've not gone for, for pretty, uh, we've gone for functional. Um, and, and I'll move on in a second that has a slide that has a bit more description that we can talk through, but it's just worth looking at the structure very briefly. It's effectively split into uh, age areas that I'll talk about in a second using that Ronin, um, Deasley and Tim Padfield methodology that we've adapted. Um, a, 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 B, C, uh, and so on, getting newer as we go down. And essentially you pick your age based on the age of the item and you work across and there are different facets that you look at that I'll explain in a second. You get to an assessment stage, uh, and at the end, it tells you, based on that, what right statements you could apply. Uh, it doesn't tell you whether you should do anything with the content. Going back to it, this does not tell you what your risk level should be, but it helps you determine uh, a, a risk level based on the factors that we're assessing here, and it gives you a potential right statement to use if you're choosing to use material at that level of risk. Um, so the framework is, is really into these three... Um, so vertically into these three sections, looking at the original object, undertaking a copyright assessment, and then looking at the output, uh, the digital surrogate we've called it, what to do with that item based on what you've done. Um, looking at the original object, the first three things here are really the core things you need to establish whether something is in copyright or not. Um, when is it from? Um, or when was it published? Um, is there a named author? There's a big impact on copyright duration in the UK if there is no known human author. So that's really important to understand. And is it published or unpublished? Is it an archival unpublished work or not? Again, that's a factor that has a huge bearing on whether, uh, on the copyright duration, 2039 and all that. So those are three essential factors. We came, as we said earlier, about minimal data. What, what is the minimum amount of information that you can maybe work with here in order to get a copyright um, assessment out? And, and we felt that these were the three, and we added in a fourth, 
which is uh, commercial intent. And this isn't relevant to whether something is in or out of copyright, but it, we felt was uh, essential for the risk assessment level. Um, we're talking about, you know, copyright, there, there are two forms of, of protections, there are economic rights and moral rights. We're obviously mostly focused on, on economic rights, uh, the right of exploitation of works. Um, so it's therefore essential, we felt, to, to look at the economic factor of, of an item. Was it created to ensure some sort of um, monetary compensation for the creator, or was it not? So those are the three factors we look at. At the start, that's all you need to know about your object, as it were. Um, and we'll come on in a minute to show some examples. Based on that information, the, the framework then guides you to whether you should, um, whether you need to complete an assessment. Uh, it might be an item based on those factors that no assessment is required. It's either definitely in or definitely out of copyright. Um, if, if it does require some sort of further assessment, uh, we have guidance about what this means. So looking into who the author uh, or creator might be, um, sources to check and so on. And we have two specified levels of assessment based on the, the level of risk that the framework is giving you, either a basic or detailed. And essentially our guidance in the framework is you should spend uh, a greater resource looking into riskier works uh, and, and prioritize your resources there. So it guides you on that. Um, and it gives you an option in each case to not assess and to simply develop what the risk would be of using the item based on simply knowing the information that you do from the first section. And then the output gives you a relative risk points. These are not, uh, these are based solely in the world of the framework, um, but just how risky is this item compared to other items, other facets of the framework. Um, and that gives you a risk level. Uh, the points are, are, are chunked into levels, uh, low to, to very high risk. Again, it's relative. It's not tied to your organizational risk level. Um, and then it gives you a right statements, either a public domain mark or one of these other right statements. So in copyright, right to hold it unknown or unlocatable, for example, or simply in copyright. Um, and a, a statement URI, um, which is, again is specific to the framework, but this is every line that you reach, every conclusion in the framework has a, a unique URI, so a unique URI, a unique reference identifier, um, so that you can retroconvert your process if you like. You can know how you reach this conclusion in the future. You can record that in your metadata. You know why we've decided that this is a medium risk item with this particular copyright statement about it. So looking at some examples. Yeah, so we've selected three examples we thought it might be useful to show you how we would do this. So for this particular example, which comes from the National Library of Wales, we were just looking for something from the 1930s that was print material, um, and randomly selected this, which is a drama adaptation of a novel that was submitted into a comp to a competition in 1934 and published in 1935. And going through the, um, using the framework, we could decide within um, a few minutes that it was author known, that, the, um, that there was commercial intent, because it says pre-sooth at the bottom there, price a shilling. Um, and then based on that, the framework tells us that it would be regarded without any further, um, any further searching um, for copyright holder. Um, it would be regarded as high risk. But what the framework does say is that if you wanted it to, be, um, to um, mitigate that risk, or risk level, then these are the steps that that person would need to take. And the, um, the detailed search is based on the guidelines that were published in 2014 by the Intellectual Property Office. So it's a set of steps that that person would need to go through and that would change the, the, the risk level as it's been, um, or it would change its category in the framework. 
And the crucial point about that, that what the framework says is if you essentially if you walk through that risk, sorry, that, that details assessment with a particular item and you were not in the time frame allotted, the resource allotted by the framework, if you're not able to find any information, the framework would, would assess it as a medium risk level instead of a high risk level because you've taken further mitigation. You've, you've established that it is not, there's not readily available information about the, the, the authorship or copyright status here. So it can allow items to move. Um, looking at a second example, this is from the National Library of Scotland, um, and this is, this is plugging into that 2039 um, um, situation we've got in, uh, in the UK. Um, this is from Notebook and Several Hands. It's a recipe. It's a recipe for shortbread because that's good in Scottish. And um, it is an unpublished work. Um, it is a manuscript. It is, it is someone's writings. Um, it is from 1734, um, and in UK copyright law, that would technically be in copyright. Uh, make of that what you will. The framework says, okay, you don't need to do anything. Um, it's so old. There's, there's no work to be done. Um, and we say it's in copyright, rights holder, unlocatable or unidentifiable. Um, and, and there's the URI there. And, and a framework says that this is a low risk level. One of the points we, we haven't made so far is that, that we've, the decision within the framework is, is is to play around with the 2039 rule a little bit and, and not pay that so much credence. If you've got um, historic works beyond a certain age that are simply in copyright by the fact that they are unpublished and no other facet, it's not possible that the author would have been alive within the last 70 years, we, we deem that to be low risk. So that, that framework allows that. And then the, the third example to give is also from the National Library of Scotland, um, and this is a uh, festival brochure. So this is uh, from the first Edinburgh International Fringe Festival. Um, it's a very big arts festival now uh, in 1947. Um, it's, not the, it's not the play itself, it's not anything like that. It's simply a, short, a very, very small pamphlet for, the, for a particular production of the play, uh, a small amount of information about the production. Um, so it is, uh, it's got, not got a named author. We just know about an organisation, the Glasgow Unity Theatre. That's not a person. Um, there's no named author. It was likely intended for free distribution. There's no price. It was probably given out. So the framework would say that subject to reasonable inquiry into the authorship, um, there would be no copyright in this because it is a work of unknown authorship and it is more than 70 years old. So where are we now? Um, the framework has been approved at executive levels by both institutions. Um, the date ranges within the framework are, are rolling, so they're updated annually. Um, the framework does need to be supported by staff training um, so that they feel confident in their use of the framework. Um, the, this year's version has been agreed between, uh, between NLS and NLW, um, and we're discussing how we're going to run that review process in the future um, as things may change um, legally um, as well as the, the change of, of dates. Um, and NLS is working on a programme to automate part of the process as well. Hopefully there'll be time for questions at some point, but we would like to ask um, whether you are familiar with any tools or methods or are using tools or methods within your own contexts and jurisdictions, um, and would this approach be useful to your organisation? And also, can you suggest improvements or other aspects that we may need to consider um, as we continue to to implement and develop the, the framework. Thank you. We do have uh, time for questions uh, for you two gentlemen. Are there any suggestions, any uh, implications that any from the crowd would like to consider? Yes, please. Uh, can I ask 
my question is, are you trying to contact the right holders? Like in the first example, because it's possible, of course, I, I'm not sure, but it's possible to find someone who is right. Do, do, you, do you try to, to, do, to do this? Um, yes, absolutely. And I, and I think that comes back to this point of this is not a framework to tell you how it's not the it's not the last word in copyright, and it's not telling you that you should publish items, for example, without further work. It's simply um, it, it's a great way to get through the material that you don't need to contact. So that middle example I gave uh, a really a really defined way to, to filter that content out and to give you um, a prioritization, for example, of material that's likely to be riskier or more complicated, um, and and to give you as an organisation the, the the room to decide what you want to do. Do you want? Do you have the capacity to contact rights holders? If you don't, you want to identify the material that you can't put online or you can't use. So it, it's that. It's it's a step before any contact would happen. Yeah. Yeah, I guess for, I'm, I'm always eager for us in terms of selection of materials for digitization to be thinking of rights from the beginning um, because it'll avoid inefficiencies further down the process if we, if we, if we come to a point where we realize that the level of, um, say that, that there is a level of risk involved, that it's unacceptable after we've done the digitization, then it's, it's, it's wasteful. So I would suggest from, from the outset that this should be part of the selection process for for the digitization of any materials. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Yes, please. Yes, as a professor from the National Library of Finland, uh, one of the stumbling blocks in, in all the literature are the illustrations. Have you any special approach to them? So embedded works, yeah. We've, we've, this doesn't tackle embedded works. So this doesn't deal with, um, this, this only deals, uh, if you like, the, the item as it was catalogued. Um, so this doesn't tackle. Um, so that's probably one of the, th I think that is on the list of, of things that need to be looked at further. It, um, huge complexity because that's not reflected in the catalog data and this requires your, your metadata really. Um, yeah. If there are not any other questions, I actually do have one. Because at our own library and university at one point there was a teaching clinic for uh, professors and assistant professors with the title, can you go to jail because you are teaching? It turned out there was an alarming deal of materials during teaching from personnel where I think the prime example were a teacher showing a blockbuster Hollywood movie for 2012. He just you know, rented it online and put it out to hundreds of students. Have you guys thought about the implications when you put up the framework that at one point someone will get back to you and said, we followed the instructions from your framework and we still were in violation of copyright because it's a new role for libraries. Have you, the risk assessment to that, have you, <laughs> oh, the risk. <laughs> have you thought about that? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, the, the framework, and we've not, we've not sort of actively published it anywhere at the moment, but, but it does come with um, uh, uh, a readme at the very start, and that has, uh, has a disclaimer, but it also has instructions about what, what all we've just described here, what it actually is intended for. So, yeah, thought about that. Thank you.
And I think on that note, I think you two guys actually know how to get Monica slides on. <laughs> I think thank you again, and we will take the last presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, networking with networks. What is the landscape for digital preservation communities like? Is the title of this presentation. I want to lay out the scheme for a survey Nestor organizes, and I will describe its contents and its challenges. Aim is to get to know better communities that have digital preservation at the core of their activities. With this presentation, we want to make public our plans for the survey and to collect ideas and hints for the improvement of the questionnaire. We would like also to convince you to fill in the, the questionnaire when you are working in the field of digital preservation as soon as we distribute it. This presentation is a collaborative uh, project by several colleagues. Thomas Baer and Michelle Lindler come from TEB, Leibniz Information Center for Science and Technology. Mrs. Schrimpf uh, works with the uh, German National Library and she's the head of the Nestor office. And Stefan Stratmann is a colleague from Göttingen State and University Library. My own name is Monika Zanitz and I'm the head of the user services and preservation care department of ZBW. My colleagues and I are active in Nestor, the German network for expertise in digital preservation, so that what I present is an outcome of Nestor activities. So now, what's in the store? Um, I just want to say some words about Nestor, and I would present the goal of this examination and the motivation of Nestor to, to make this survey. Then I describe the types of networks that we choose for this project and give an overview of the draft of the surveys and the categories of the questions we want to pose. Then I will say something about the challenges of this endeavor with some examples and at last I will present the timetable for the survey. Yes, what is Nestor? Um, Nestor is, sorry. Nestor is the offspring of a project that had been um, financed by the German Federal Ministry for Education and Science. It started in 2003 and was extended until 2009. And since this point of time, um, Nestor has been maintained by its members and its associated partners. It has a big range of coverage in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. It started as a way of top-down movement, but became a bottom-up community in the course of time. At the moment, we have 19 partners of Nestor, which are paying the, the membership fee and which are the core of Nestor, but there are 170 persons from other organizations that work within the working groups of Nestor and these working groups of Nestor are the heart of Nestor. It has really a wide range. 
Nestor fosters digital preservation by community building, formation in the field of digital preservation and, for example, the Nestor School, the development of materials that are useful and many other activities. It's a network linking libraries, archives and museums. Archives are the most numerous uh, members of Nestor. Um, libraries are the second um, part of it and um, there are relatively few museums in, in Nestor. Nestor provides support for digital preservation in different institutions, for example, by publishing handbooks, instructions, blueprints for documents useful in digital preservation matters, for example, the preservation policy, and the Nestor catalog of criteria for trusted digital repositories. And last but not least, Nestor is in contact with many global players in the field of digital preservation. So what's the goal of this examination? With this examination, we want to analyze the networks and communities that cope with digital preservation worldwide. We want to identify their topics and their needs with the aim of detecting factors of the sex success for these communities and with the aim to find out um, gaps in the coverage of themes that belong to digital preservation with the aim for Nestor to look whether it can have a certain international profiling and things which other uh, institutions do not uh, yet at the moment. Yes, and this survey will provide basic information that we will use to define new fields for international work sharing among the communities. There are different, uh, there are different types of communities and here we define the term community very broadly. In the presentation we use also the term network for community as a synonym. The communities we want to analyze reach from pure mailing lists to association with several uh, full-time equivalents as a staff that is employed by the network. Here we differentiate the communities each with networks with a wide choice of topics, for example, the Digital Preservation Coalition, networks that offer tools for digital preservation, for example, the Open Preservation Foundation, regionally orientated networks, which we have in Germany, some regional library or archives networks, and networks with a special subject, for example, the International Internet Preservation Consortium, which copes only with one special aspect of digital preservation. This is just to categorize the networks we have in mind when we prepare the, the survey. Well, these are the categories for the questions in the survey. There are eight categories, but there are much more questions. Our draft for the survey comprises eight categories. They reach from formal aspects to questions concerning success factors out of the perspective of the single community. Differentiating between the different categories and questions was not so easy. I will come to this in the following slides. We want to address this survey to the organizers of the community so that we will get one answer from each community that takes part in the survey. The survey will be a survey that is not anonymous because we want to contact the community in case we have questions concerning the answers of the community. Therefore, we need to know 
um, who has filled in the questionnaire. What are the challenges in this endeavor? We um, have three classifications of this. The first one is that there are some uh, interconnected aspects in the questions, which make it difficult to receive clear answers in some cases. This is one reason we do not use an anonymous questionnaire. We want to contact the community in case that there is an answer that is unclear or intersects with other questions. The second category is asking for information about internal sensitive information for example, about the financing of the network. That may be difficult since we do not want to use an anonymous survey. And the third category is that there are facts we simply do not know since we have a European North American background. The world is so big so that there can be surprises during the analysis of the questionnaire. There are different cultural and legal institutions, so that we must be careful not to compare apples with oranges. On the following slides, I give some examples for these challenges. Challenge one are the interconnected aspects. They turn to be, uh, they turned out to be manifold, and here I will give you some examples. For example, knowledge creation is a big aim of um, communities. It is linked to formation in digital preservation or publications on digital preservation so that we put it in one category and in one question. Community building intersects, for example, with organization of conferences and other measures. And we have just one question for that to, to make things a bit easier. Then, um, some communities have as an aim to develop technology and that aspect uh, belongs also to improvement of tools so that we put that together in one question as well. Digital preservation as a survey service may belong also to topics of interest so that it is difficult to distinguish these really clearly. The result is this, that with some categories and questions there will be a certain fuzziness that can hardly be avoided. We know that and we have to accept that. The second challenge is asking for information about sensitive topics. Um, that is first the, the question of the staffing of the network, which is always sensitive and difficult to differentiate in the context of digital preservation. Many networks work with members or even non-members that give input voluntarily and who are more or less active. It is difficult to define activeness and it is also difficult to count the persons who really work in the network. Another point is whether the network employs persons, for example the Open Preservation Foundation, or whether the community has a possibility to be staffed by a member organization, at least, e.g., for a central office. This is the case with Nestor. The staffing of the Nestor office comes from German National Library, and we other members are very thankful for this. Many other solutions for the staffing are imaginable. We have to find out what it looks like in the landscape of communities. The last point is the financing of the costs and investments the communities plan. 
We did not develop a special question concerning this point. We just asked for whether they take membership fees, whether they sponsor a ring or something like that. We do not we do not ask about how much funding they have because that uh, I think nobody will will publish. Well, then there is a third challenge. Um, the world is a very big place. That's why legal systems and other institutional infrastructure differ and cannot be to be compared with each other. That makes clear-cut questions sometimes difficult, and we are looking forward to all the surprises when the survey circulates in the world. We want to contact the communities we already know directly, but want to distribute the survey in all important mailing lists for digital preservation we know at present. We hope that we can contact all regions of the world with this survey. Now some words about the timetable. We want to start the survey at the beginning of September of this year. It shall end on the 30th of November. And we hope that we have a first uh, analysis of the results until the end of 2019. And then we want to publish the results. And um, I think there will be some publications on this survey as well. No, that's the most important point for me. That's why I have come here. I would like to know whether you have questions concerning the survey, and I would be very thankful for suggestions, hints, and new ideas about what we can ask in this survey. Thank you. I think we have a time for Monica, of course, to field questions. And in general, we have a little bit of time before the coffee break. So also, of course, to Monica's presentation, but also the others, if you have any questions, we have time for that. So does anyone have questions for Monica after this? I do have a... May I yeah, sure. pose a question to the audience? I would like to know which persons uh, have already contact with digital preservation or work in the field of digital preservation. Can you raise your hand? One, two, three, four, five. Yes, okay. The whole idea of starting the network and doing the survey, uh, did you have a, how, how did that come above? Was it a, like a burning platform and a problem or was it more organically evolved? Do you mean Nestor? Yes. It exists already for a long time, and it is a relatively big network. We have 170 institutions from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland that work in working groups of Nestor. And um, uh, to, to create this survey, and so it was my own idea, and I looked for some partners from Nestor because I'm not so long in the business yet, and um, the other partners know better the whole landscape of digital preservation in the whole world. I would say that potentially your survey, when it is complete, could be of extremely valuable uh, knowledge, not only for the network, but for digital preservation in, in general. Yes, I think so too. It will give a bit more transparency about what is happening all over the world. 
and every network can look and see whether there is still a right point on the landscape and can uh, can focus its activities on, on this. So there will be something good for the whole of it. The process of communication, communicating the results and the findings, and some are probably very good, some could be identifying problems within the yes. network. What are your plan of taking this back to the network and the members in the network? Well, uh, we will publish the results and maybe that was an idea from, of me that I did not discuss until yet with the other co-authors. Maybe it would be good to publish it so that other yes. communities have a grip on it and can uh, analyze it for their own purposes. It's not meant to be only for, for Nestor. I would say potentially, at least from Denmark, there would be some very good points for digital preservation, not only for my own library, but also in general. Yes. Because there are, it's a little bit like copyright, there are some black holes out there that we have not identified, and there are probably a lot of practices yes. where people, without knowing it, are doing it in three or four different ways, try to solve the same problem. Yes, yes, that's true. So I guess that is something that you have built into your survey or try to identify. Yes. yes. yes okay. We did. Yes. Are there any uh, questions for uh, Monica or some of the others before we clear for the coffee break? Otherwise, I do have one front. We didn't have time after your, uh, John, after your presentation. Um, and if we are freestyling a little bit, I know that Monica is here, I, I really do have a question for you. Um, because you told, you said once during your presentation that as a library we are used to saying, no, 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 we can't do that. And now you get this really radical change of actually doing a whole new campus, a whole new university, five, ten thousand miles away. And I was just wondering how that affected your work as a library in general. I mean, it would probably be quite a game changer for you as a library. You could see that it had all kinds of positive effects with more attention and more dialogue. But it would also seem to be some kind of cultural change within the library if you can't say no, if you have to say yes all the time. I was just wondering what kind of reflections or what kind of internal discussions did you have on that? Because I find that hugely interesting when things like that happens in organizations. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yes, um, I think the greatest impact was uh, in terms of prioritization for the library. There were a number of issues that we wanted to move forward on at that time before the announcements were made. Uh, digital preservation, various other areas that we, we knew were burning, burning bushes that we needed to address quickly. Um, but the strategy by the university determined, you know, we had finite resource allocation, um, so we had to dedicate staff. Uh, it meant uh, where we did have staffing budgets available, where we wanted to invest in new roles, uh, we actually put them on pause <coughs> and invested in additional staff in Alex's team, etc. Culturally, I think it's been a positive thing um, because of the impact of our reach now within the university. Uh, I think having those tough discussions, um, uh, particularly with senior members of the university, uh, around 
the issues, but all the, also the opportunities uh, and uh, getting them to realise the total cost of business. Um, electronic resources seems to be a hidden cost in that matter. Um, was a learning curve for them. Um, and I think the long-term cultural benefits is that we have more of a, not assertive, but more of a positive uh, public uh, view. And um, I think it's nicely uh, referenced in the various committees now we're attending, where when we do say no, or we can't, or there's a cost, they do pause and stop. Uh, before it was very much, it's a problem, thanks very much, but go away. So no, it's been good, it's been good. And like I said, for us now, it's the new business as usual. We should put as much infrastructure and support in to do it as the physical collections that we manage. I don't think I will let you off the hook just yet, you know, so <laughs> I was just wondering another thing, because I find your presentation very inspiring and, and it, it does give an insight into how you can make the, the, a new normal work really. But as we heard also from some of the keynotes, uh, we live in a world of open science and open access. And the $64,000 question would be, what were your considerations toward actually harvesting open access materials and perhaps having a new approach and putting that out into curriculum? Did, did you have any reflections on that when you ventured into this? It's a very good question. Uh, and there's a very, uh, there's a very uh, concise answer. Um, and you might guess that. That was, that was no, our focus wasn't there. Um, and maybe in hindsight, uh, missed opportunities. Um, um, but yes, something to build on and look into. Thank you. If there are no more questions for this session, we have the golden opportunity to get first in line for the coffee break. <laughs> I will say thank you very much all for coming and thank you for the presenters. I think we should give them one last round of applause. <laughs>